Entrepreneurs Over 40, Episode 42, with Andrew Darlow talking about inventing. After 15 years, it looks like hopefully in the next six months, uh, we'll have a new bubble-related product from Frame Destination, which I'm really excited about. And on the toy side, I'm working on card games and table games and toy car-related games. I have all these ideas and Fortunately, there are people out there who will actually take time and listen to me as I create my sell sheets and my pitch videos. There's a whole industry out there looking for new ideas, which is really exciting. And you don't have to be an employee of these companies. You just have to know how to be professional and how to present to them. You're listening to Entrepreneurs Over 40, the show for somewhat mature entrepreneurs and side hustlers. And now your host, Greg Mills. Our guest today is a New Jersey-based photographer, consultant, and inventor. Over the past 25 years, he has taught amateur and professional photographers how to improve their photography, workflow, backups, and digital print output at conferences, industry events, and educational institutions, including the Photo Plus Expo, the Arl Photo Festival, Columbia University, and the International Center of Photography in New York. His articles and images have been included in many publications, books, and TV programs, including Animal Planet, People Magazine, and CBS News. He's the editor of ImagingBuffet.com and the author of four award-winning books, including a hardcover coffee table book featuring dog photographs and canine-inspired philosophy. His newest book, Focus and Filter, was an Amazon hot new release and the number one bestseller in the lighting category. In 2009, he licensed a custom bubble bag idea to FrameDestination.com after his framed artwork was damaged after an exhibition. Since then, over a million dollars of gallery pouch bags have been sold. Without further ado, Andrew Darlow. Thank you so much, Greg, for having me. I love the show. I think you may have to rename it, though. I think it should be Inventors Over 40 and Others because of all the amazing interviews you've had with inventors. I will definitely take that into consideration. Now, Andrew, can you take a few moments and fill in the gaps from that intro and bring us up to speed with what's going on in your world today? Oh, absolutely. I've been really fortunate in my life both to be born where I was born and to have the parents I had. So I was kind of thrown into the world of typography and photography and printing. So that was a lot of my upbringing and a lot of that rubbed off on me. And as I went through the years, even though I studied business and traveled quite a bit, I went back to a career in photography, which led to so many great things. So that's sort of the beginning. And then I can go on and on about all the things that have happened since then. Let's talk about your family. Did you come from an entrepreneurial or inventor's background? Did anyone in your family have their own business or invent anything when you were growing up? Yes, definitely. My mother's side, my grandfather was a co-owner in a candy store. So that's being an entrepreneur. On my dad's side, my grandfather started a company in the printing industry and he called it uh, Cardinal Press. And from there, my dad and his brothers worked there for many years and then grew the business for the next 30 or 40 years. So being in that environment and seeing both what my grandfather did and then what my dad and my uncle did to build this typography business into a bigger printing business and then uh, photography and graphic arts business 
really had a great impact on me. And I can go into sort of my experience working there, which really changed my life. But that beginning and seeing what my dad and many of my other family members went through to build that business and to run that business had a, a major effect on me. Now, you mentioned typography. And I know that Steve Jobs had listed that as like one of the major things that shaped his life in, in the course curriculums, his focus on font. And at the time, it seemed like a waste, or at least that's what he said. But it all joined up together to bring him to where he was when he started Apple. Absolutely. In fact, I have a great story about that one. He spoke about that, I think, in his commencement speech at Stanford. And he had taken a calligraphy class at Reed College. And then that had such an impact on him that he made sure that when the Macintosh was released in 1984, it had great fonts. And I can remember vividly walking up to a Macintosh in 1984 probably January of 84, in Sears, and just playing with the fonts. And believe it or not, my family's neighbor owned and built one of the first computer stores in New Jersey. And so my dad claims we had the first Macintosh to come into the state of New Jersey. So I was playing with fonts, and I had the printer. And I, I feel so fortunate to have been able to be exposed to that at such a young age. Now, growing up, what did you want to do? Well, if I look back on one of my reports from the sixth grade, I wanted to be a radio DJ. You and me both. <laughs> so here we are. I'm, I'm like the guest and you're the DJ. I actually had an uncle that was a DJ. Uh, I never knew him. He, he died way before I was uh, born. But I often wondered what would my life have been like if I'd gone that route. But, you know, because I'm more of an introvert and they tend to do a lot of stuff outside of the radio station, that may not have been a good career choice. I did start a few podcasts. I have one right now related to backup. I'm just not actively producing that because of all the other things I'm doing. But I guess anyone who does a podcast could label themselves like a, a DJ. So it's, it's truly amazing what's possible today. Now, you were a foreign exchange student in Japan for, I think, about two months. Yes, I was in a group in high school called the Future Business Leaders of America, and I had a wonderful advisor. And I learned at that time that there was a scholarship available for people either to go to Japan or Germany and spend the summer with a family. So I said, okay, that sounds wonderful. Why not send in the application? And I was chosen as one of the scholarship recipients. And I spent the summer of 1988, right after high school, with a family in Nara, Japan, which is on the western part of Japan, not far from Osaka, and where Buddhism first came into Japan. And it was the most unbelievable experience in my life. My homestay mother, although she spoke some English, she didn't speak that much English. So I was immersed in the Japanese language and the culture. I even went to Japanese high school, which was just unbelievable and quite different yet similar to school here. I mean, for example, all the kids have to bow to the sensei before class and all the kids do most of the cleaning, you know, washing the windows and the floors and things like that. So those are some of the things that are a little different, but otherwise kids are kids. And I had a chance to visit a number of Japan's largest companies like Matsushita, which is Panasonic. And back in 1988, I saw one of the first flat screen televisions. So I had a glimpse into the future. 
and so many other things and experiences that I had there were just unforgettable. And that led to me spending a year, about a year and a half later, back in Japan at a place called Kansai University of Foreign Languages. I usually say the Japanese version of it, but I think that's the name of it. And that was just incredible. I had so many wonderful experiences learning Japanese, also taking business classes, meeting people from all around the world. It sounds like it really impacted your life and changed you. Yes, in many, many ways. Most importantly, it gave me a better sense of the world, gave me a better sense of the history of the United States, also the history of Japan and, and Asia. And I had a chance to visit places like South Korea and Thailand. One of the nicest things was I, I went back with my mom years later, and we went to a number of places. But most importantly, I, I was able to introduce her to my Japanese homestay family. And it was just really special to have two families who cared so much about me. Now, going back to your family, and they were in the printing business, how did that kind of influence you as, as in not only as a photographer, as an inventor as well? Well, as an inventor, I'll start there because my dad when he had a need, he did what he could to have that need fulfilled, either by coming up with something that he created in the shop or something that he could then talk to a big company who was making a product. And in one case, there was a huge company who made the film for one of the processes that, that he would always use. And he wanted a specific type of film that just wasn't made. So he brought it up to the sales rep. And then I spoke to an engineer and he, he was so confident in this product that he guaranteed a few million dollars in sales. And he told me that after a year or two, they had already purchased $8 million of this product from the company. And that was all based on his idea that made his life easier. So I think that spark, I've picked up on that in some way through my dad. And he's told me about other things as well that he's done. And he's really great in marketing as well. So I've picked up quite a bit from him. And that's just one example. How do you think your dad got that mindset? You know, the ability to go out and not accept the norm. I think it was just survival. He was working from quite a young age in the printing business, and he learned how to use all the machines. Now, these are machines not too far removed from what Gutenberg had invented 500 years before he was born. He would make sure that they were running properly. He would run jobs. He would set type. He would even have to carry lead from where they purchased it, sometimes onto a bus <laughs> and then get it there to the shop. And it's just incredible how he was able to learn so much. And I think having to learn and having to like clean the machines and having to put together so many jobs, like setting the type in those forms and then running it through the machine and actually getting great product on the other side, I think taught him to solve problems. And then just having to help run the business so they would not go bankrupt. I think that was a big part of, of the survival and why he was then able to help grow the business as the world of digital typography came into play around 1970. Let's talk about your first invention, the gallery pouch. How did that come about? Well, I had an exhibition of my flower photography at a really nice high-end flower shop in Manhattan. The pictures were white wood frames and glass, and everything was fine until the point 
in which they had to come off the wall. Now, this wasn't a typical gallery situation, and I wasn't really clear with them that I should be the one taking the frames off of the wall. So they were taken off in a way that did not get them back into any type of protective covering. And that's not easy to do because I didn't give them the best coverings to start because I really didn't think that much about it. So when I got back my work, I was shocked because this was maybe $1,500, maybe more of my frame prints. Most of them had some type of damage and some of them it was pretty bad, like gouges and things like that. The back of many framed prints have a hanging wire. And in order to put the hanging wire onto the back, you need these screw eyes that go into the back. And those screw eyes happen to be made of metal. And if you put the metal side against the front of a frame, you can imagine the scratching and what can happen. So even though the glass was fine, the white frame of most of them were damaged. So I said, I, I want to come up with something. I don't want this to happen to other people. So I said to someone who I knew through an amazing news group for people who were into digital art and photography, his name is Mark Rogers. And I said, Mark, can you make me a custom bubble bag so that I can protect my work? And he said, oh, well, I'll try. And because he had the machines that would seal any type of thin plastics because he would be putting all kinds of different mats and frames into cellophane, typical sealers for sheets of plastic. But he tried it with bubble, very lightweight bubble, and it worked. Didn't look great, but it worked. And I was so excited because he was making me these custom bags. And then I said, well, can we talk about working together? I'll help you develop this product. We'll find the right bubble and uh, we'll find a way to close it and seal it. Maybe a month or two of working through all those steps, we came up with something we were both very proud of, a heavyweight bubble that was coated on both sides, so no exposed bubbles, something that had beautiful edges. That was because we had a special machine, and that machine made these really nice edges because you're talking about artwork. So if you had like a really ratty edge on the bubble bags, to me, it wouldn't really have the same effect as if you have a beautiful edge and then all of them have a flap so that you can just flap it over and close it yourself. And we also decided to allow people to use either their own hook and loop or we also provided that, and they call that gallery pouch with Velcro. Okay, so you all figured out the how to make the product. How did you figure out how to market it and how to sell it? Well, fortunately, Mark had been running his business, which is framedestination.com, for many years, maybe eight to 10 years at that time. Mm -hmm. He had everything in place. He had his marketing process. So it wasn't really that much of a reach for him to start offering that to his customers. He just put it on the site. I made a video, which is still used today. It's a little bit cringeworthy, but it's like a four-minute video <laughs> of me showing my story about the birth of the gallery pouch bag and how they can be used. And I believe that that had a big impact on the sales because people could see, first of all, someone like themselves who had this struggle and how I'm using it and how it's also superior to what they normally would think of as bubble or bubble wrap. It's a big difference. So I think when they saw all that, it just helped people to have enough confidence in trying it out and since then, they've topped a million dollars in sales so far, which 
sounds like a big number and it is for me. Obviously, I just get a small percentage of that as the inventor, but I'm happy that a million dollars means that it's helped a lot of people over the mm-hmm. years. Yeah, it sounds like you were very lucky in that you teamed up with the right partner and it was just a good convergence. And I'm not trying to take anything away from what you did either. It sounds like you got a lot of your dad's mindset. <laughs> yeah, I feel very fortunate. And my granddad is also very smart in business. He was able to survive in the printing business with four kids for many years. You're obviously a very creative person. What provides you inspiration when either taking photography, writing, or designing a new product? I think that my desire to have a certain type of product or to have a certain feature of a product or a game, which is one of the areas in which I'm focusing on now, is really what drives me to create and to write item after item in my little invention notebooks. It's this need almost to solve problems that I have because then I find out often that other people are having the same problems or just this desire to make life more fun. And that's why I really enjoy the challenge of creating things like games and toys, because if I can help bring a smile to someone's face or bring a family together for an evening. It just gives me so much joy. Okay. And you're currently working on some products now, correct? Yes. In fact, after 15 years, it looks like hopefully in the next six months, uh, we'll have a new bubble-related product from Frame Destination, which I'm really excited about. And on the toy side, I'm working on card games and table games and toy car-related games. I have all these ideas. And fortunately, there are people out there who will actually take time and listen to me as I create my sell sheets and my pitch videos. There's a whole industry out there looking for new ideas, which is really exciting. And you don't have to be an employee of these companies. You just have to know how to be professional and how to present to them. Okay. Now, is that considered open innovation? Yes. That's the, the buzzword that I learned, I don't know how many years back, and I don't know exactly who coined it, but most of what I've learned in, in the world of invention is from Stephen Key and Andrew Krauss starting 17 years ago, probably. Through all their free content at that time, I had the confidence to present my ideas to Mark Rogers with the gallery pouch way back then. Otherwise, it would have been much harder if I didn't have them as a guide. I just wouldn't have known how to approach it, how to talk to a potential licensee. Since then, I put my inventing on the back burner because I was focused on writing books and doing consulting and also helping raise my son. Just a few years ago, I really said, I want a more focused approach toward my inventing. And then I became an official premium student at InventRight. I also learned from a number of other inventors. So that has really made a big difference because I had a coach that I spoke with on average of once a week. It really helps when you have someone that you know is waiting there to talk to you about your inventions. And I didn't want to let them down. And I wanted to just keep moving the process forward. And it took longer than I thought, but I'm finally pitching. And that's That's the key, because if you're not selling, you're not really in the game, as they say. And I'm really excited about everything. It's like that bamboo, which is like growing underground for so long, sprouts up and it grows at an amazing pace. So that's what I feel like. I'm just at that point where the bamboo shoot is about to come out of the ground with regard to my other inventions. 
Why did you decide to go back and get more education via InventRight? Because I kept seeing their amazing videos and I kept seeing success stories from other inventors, either people who had gone through their program or people who they just had on the show. And then I kept learning about inventors through the ages. I would listen to podcasts and hear inventor stories. I preferred the stories of people who were able to have a fairly normal life and and still come up with things that then they either brought to market themselves or that they licensed. And seeing all of this over time made me want to come up with new ideas and made me jump aboard and really get into the InventRight world. And what I didn't realize with InventRight is the community that's formed because they have so many students from so many countries. LinkedIn was like key, you know, picture like opening a door and there's like all this light. It was like this incredible oasis of like-minded people. And by the way, it wasn't just the people who were working on inventions. It was also the people who would be interested in new products. They're all there for the most part. And there's actually a fantastic book written by Stephen Key and Benjamin Harrison all about LinkedIn. And I could not believe the power of LinkedIn and being a part of the InventRight community sort of brought me into LinkedIn. And then I realized that is the key today for anyone who wants to reach anyone in almost any industry. And especially if you want to find decision makers who can license your product. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I actually had reached out to Benjamin Harrison to see about having him on the show. And right after I did that, I realized, wait a second, he may not actually be 40. And sure enough, he wrote me back. He busted my chops, but it was funny. He's like, no, I'm not. We'll have to postpone it a few years. So you mentioned toys and games. Are there any other industries that you've got ideas for that you're looking to target? Yes, I do. I have. I love kitchen. I love auto. I love the garage. I just love anywhere that you can create something that will allow people to do something faster or make it more fun or maybe fit more things in a specific space. And the more I see from other inventors, the more I'm inspired to solve maybe similar problems. And so one of my favorite places is the container store. I'll go there and I'll see this particular part, like it could be connected to this and make it so much better or more useful. I would encourage anyone who wants to get into this world to go to somewhere that has products that you have some connection with that you could use. Also take pictures so you can see the companies who are making them. Almost every label has the manufacturer. And what I do is I'll then go back and I'll take a look at their product line. I'll see if it's selling on Amazon. I'll see what other products are there and also look at reviews. This is probably one of the best tips for anyone who wants to develop new ideas or additions to any type of product. And from there, just find out exactly how you can make this product affordably. You don't have to go crazy with it and just make a virtual prototype or just put something together yourself, take some pictures of it and learn how to go through the steps 
of getting a provisional patent application, which for most people, I think it's if your household income is under about $200,000 a year, it's only $75 and you can make as many of them as you want. It allows you to put patent pending on your sell sheets and on your video. And it's the best way to get 12 months to start on some type of protection so that you don't have to always go out and try to get people to sign NDAs. And I'm not a lawyer. This is not legal advice. But from everything I've learned, you can generally feel as though once you have the provisional patent application in place, you can start showing what you have on a private one-to-one basis or like in Zoom calls and things like that. You just want to label everything as confidential. I like to put not for sale and just explain to them that this is not something to be shared outside of the people who you're showing it to or, or their immediate circle. Once you learn the process, that is the key because like so many things in this world, the process is what gets you to the goal line and just follow the footsteps of other successful people. And there's a really good chance that you'll be successful too. Good advice. I kind of had in my mind that you would probably be focusing in also on the uh, pet industry. It seems like it'd be a no-brainer. Well, I'm thinking of them too. I, I do have some ideas and I love everything related to pets. I've written two books on photographing dogs. One of them is a how-to book called Pet Photography 101. The other one is a whimsical hardcover coffee table book called Biscuit for Your Thoughts, which recently mm-hmm. I was honored to see that Simon & Schuster picked up uh, soft cover rights to that. So it's available in soft cover now as well. And I get so much joy photographing people and their pets. So there are a number of ideas that I have related to pets. I'm just talking about in general, and you've probably noticed this, but there's a lot of cross-pollination between industries. Like, say, for example, you know, you're a plumber and then you look at another industry and you think, hey, I could use this particular tool, apply it here, and create something new in that category. Absolutely. That's how most inventions, I think, related to tools are made. It's somebody gets frustrated and then they just say, you know, I, I can make this so much better. And then they find out how to make it work. The key is making it work. And with 3D printing today, I even bought a 3D printer. It was so affordable. Uh, it's a flash forge and it, it has a pretty small area, six and a half inches cubed or so, but mm-hmm. it's great for a lot of what, what I want to do. So with 3D printing, whether you do it yourself or whether you have it farmed out, you can create things that look like final products, which is just so incredible. And if you're in any kind of industry, it really doesn't matter. And you can make something a little better. And one of the best ways to do that is putting something onto another product. I think the stereotypical example is a light on the drill. The person didn't invent the drill. They didn't invent the light, but they put the light on the drill to make it easier for people to work. Mm -hmm. So what kind of mindset do you need when you're reaching out to these companies and pitching your products? I imagine that there would probably be a lot of rejection. Yes, I've learned to go for the no. There's another phrase, fail forward. I get inspiration mainly from people who I learn, like Dana Knowles. She was on your show. She said that she had either 52 or 53 rejections before her hanging shower caddy was accepted by a company for licensing. So you have to be very appreciative when people give you that no, because it's just another step forward. And one example is if you can, and maybe afterward, you can say, thank you so much for taking a look. 
could I just ask you one quick question? Most people will say yes. Can you tell me what I may have done better with my presentation? And some people might say, well, this would have been great last year, but it's not great now. So you can mark that down. And then that might be a reason to bring that back or something slightly different a, a year later. Or they may say something like, it's just a little too big for, for what we do. Everything we sell has to fit in this box. So that's a really good point because it's not that hard to make something smaller. And then in many cases, you'll also want to ask, would it be okay for me to check back in with you in, in six months or so, either with this idea or maybe other ideas? And then they usually will say yes. You may also say, well, do you generally like to see one idea at a time or multiples? And they may say, well, just try to keep it to about three. So you'll get all this great information. And it's amazing how many people will license after two or three presentations to the same company. Okay. Now, do you think you'll ever come up with your own book about inventing? That's funny because I just committed myself to a program to speed write a book. And it was through another program I was on called 30-Day LinkedIn Sprint, mm -hmm. run by a gentleman named Tom Kugler. And from that, one of the people was so inspired by his process of bringing together, in this case, it was 80 people to write for 30 days straight on LinkedIn. This woman uh, named Nira, she decided to do her own sprint and it would be write a book. Mm -hmm. So I signed up for her program and I plan to do a book related to inventing. It's not so much a how-to because I think Stephen Key and others have done that. It's something else, which I won't give away right now, but I'm excited to do it. Okay. Well, we'll look forward to that. And you'll have to come back on and tell us about it when it's out. Definitely. Let's get ready to wrap this up. Is there anything I haven't asked that you'd like to go over? The one thing is just because you may be an independent person, companies want your ideas. I think that's the first thing that I'd like to say. You would think they have people there that are just coming up with ideas all day long and they don't even want to hear from outside inventors. And I will say that's true for some, but there are so many companies out there. And there are many companies who get about half of all their ideas from outside inventors. So first know that you are wanted and needed. And then after that, just learn the process. And I do have a few pet peeve items that I'd like to talk about if that's okay with you. Oh, definitely. Okay, so first, this is something that I just came up with recently. It's something that has been bothering me for so many years. I noticed that in my home state of New Jersey, and I'm guessing it's similar elsewhere around the world, about 5 to 10% of the cars have a headlight out and or taillight out or brake light out. So I said, well, what can I do as a single person? I said, well, I see all these hashtag campaigns, these PSAs. So I decided to create a PSA. I call it first day light check. That's my hashtag, first day light check. And if you go to any of the major social media brands, you'll see my first day light check pop up. It's just a way to see my articles about it. And my goal with this is to encourage people on the first day of each month to check their lights. Just check your lights, check your headlights, check your normal headlights, check your high beams, check your taillights, and check your brake lights. And I believe that 
if I can inspire enough people to do that, I believe it could, if not save lives, help avoid people from getting stopped by law enforcement, which is nice, and reduce the chances of getting a ticket. But also, it could just reduce injuries and who knows. I don't think there's anything bad that could come of it, so I'm excited to share that. So that's my first pet peeve. It sounds like if you could... Tie this in with one of your inventions. I bet the auto industry, particularly if it was around lights, would buy into that. Yes, I could certainly tag some of the big lighting companies. My other item that also bothers me only because I've almost been run over when I've been in parking lots. This is primarily parking lots, but it's anywhere where you might be walking is people on their cell phones when they're in parking lots. I can't explain, in my opinion, how dangerous this is because I've literally seen cars come right at me, backing up directly into me. And that's because I was very aware. And so, and this is particularly something that I think parents with small kids need to be very careful with. You don't want your kids to run ahead of you in parking lots Mm -hmm. because cars just can't see you. And so, you want to keep your kids next to you. But Being on a cell phone, looking down while you're in a parking lot, I think is one of the most dangerous things that you can do. So my PSA in this case is even though there's such a draw to be looking at a cell phone 24-7, I would highly recommend if anyone is anywhere where there's cars involved, especially in parking lots, not to be looking at a cell phone. Okay. Now, Andrew, what's the best way for someone to contact you or to check you out? I would just send people to andrewdarlow.com or you can, if you're interested in my books, you can just put Andrew Darlow into uh, like Amazon or, or Barnes and Noble. So I'll keep it simple because andrewdarlow.com will have links to everything that I do. Okay. That's kind of the umbrella site. Yeah. Also, if you're interested in the gallery pouch, you can go to gallerypouch.com and you'll see information. You'll see a video, the video that I talked about of me quite a few years ago and a lot of other information about the gallery pouch. Okay. Lastly, what's the number one piece of advice that you can give for our listeners? If you have a dream, then write it down and find a way, as long as it's reasonable, just find the people who are out there who are doing what your dream says on that paper and see if you can follow their steps to success. That's wise, not having to reinvent the wheel. Mm -hmm. That's wrap. Thank you, Andrew, for being a guest on Entrepreneurs Over 40. Thanks so much, Greg. This is so much fun. I appreciate it. If you'd like to leave feedback on this episode or suggest a guest, you can reach me at eo40show at gmail.com. That's eo40show at gmail.com. Don't forget to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss it or any other episodes. Thank you for listening to Entrepreneurs Over 40. Check us out at entrepreneursover40.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory.